Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you, Al. I, I grew a beard. Come on. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joel. Uh, I am married to Dee, who you saw. Uh, previously. Uh, we lead the service here, uh, and it's great to be able to speak to you. Uh, I don't get to do this very often, so I'm really uh, looking forward to uh, sharing what's been on my heart. Uh, we've been looking at the armour of God uh, over the last few weeks uh, on the series called Equipped. We've looked at how uh, Paul depicts the armour of God and how we can put on some parts of the armour that help us and equip us to live out a, a thriving Christian life. We've looked at themes like faith and salvation and truth. And today we are looking at the shoes of the gospel of peace. Um, And this subject, uh, as I've been preparing and also just before, has been really been on my heart for a while now. Uh, And I'm praying that it will just be a really significant evening for us as a service. We're going to look at how we have peace for ourselves, uh, how we wear the shoes of peace, and then how we bring peace to others. And one of the things that has really struck me about this uh, theme or this part of the armour is the link between peace and sharing our faith. And you might think that those two things are very... um, uh, I guess, distant or not necessarily related. We might think that truth or uh, being correct or good theology or whatever would be more related, but uh, we'll see and hopefully I'll be able to unpack a little bit as to how peace is an essential aspect of sharing our faith. I'm going to hopefully uh, show you how Paul and Jesus saw this as a key ingredient. So we're going to read part of the passage. Uh, it's in Ephesians 6 and it is, we're just going to read from verse 13 and the words will be up on the screen behind me. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So the first thing I just want to talk about is how we put on these shoes of peace for ourselves. All of us long for peace, whether we would call ourselves followers of Jesus or not. It is one of the greatest treasures of the human experience, and both in the sense of having peace from war or from conflict, but also having the sense of inner peace in our hearts and in our lives. And so many struggles that we have in our life come because of a lack of peace. We might have a lack of peace for our future or for our careers or our relationships. We don't have peace about maybe how we look or how we behave. And anxiety and fear can be just a really crippling uh, experience as we feel the inner turmoil that life can bring. And this, is, it seem, this seems to be particularly true for Western culture. Just an exa- example, if you grew up in the States, you have about a 30% chance of, of developing some kind of uh, anxiety disorder, whereas in China it's just 5%. And it seems to suggest that uh, our culture, or Western culture, has a lot to do or a lot to say about uh, this lack of peace. And we could go on and talk about why this is in lots of detail, but I just want to uh, talk quickly about um, how our society has tried to solve this problem. And I think it's been quite an interesting thing to observe. 
Here's just a couple of examples. One of them is something called mindfulness, which has been a relatively recent uh, development. And what's been really interesting about this one is it has a lot of similarities between some of the practices that Jesus taught in the Gospels. And here's a direct quote from the NHS website. It's a really helpful page if you want to check it out um, on mindfulness. It says, uh, as well as practicing mindfulness in daily life, it can be helpful to set aside time for a more formal mindfulness practice. Mindfulness meditation involves sitting silently and paying attention to the thoughts, sounds, the sensations of breathing or parts of the body, bringing your attention back whenever the mind starts to wonder. And what kind of struck me about this quote is that it sounded so much like what uh, we would call maybe in churches like a quiet time, where we would just spend 10 or 15 minutes time a day just to reflect and think. Um, obviously, this doesn't quite go as far as we would. We would say that you kind of want to focus on things above, on God, and involve things like prayer and the Bible. And Jesus modelled this kind of thing quite a lot in the Gospels as well. Well, all the time, in fact. Uh, on so many occasions, he would go to a solitary place to pray, to fast and to think. And it was almost as if, and it doesn't necessarily explicitly say this, but it was almost as if he couldn't do the ministry that he was doing without having those times away uh, to pray. And one of the really interesting things I've, I listened to recently was how um, when Jesus went and spent 40 days in the desert and then was tempted by the devil... Often we think about that story as uh, the devil kind of getting Jesus at his weakest point. Um, but actually, I think or want to suggest that maybe the reason why Jesus spent 40 days in the, des in the desert is because he needed that. He needed to pray. He needed to fast. He needed to be alone to prepare himself for that temptation and for that moment. And this can be one of the hardest things to do. Taking time out, taking, having this quiet time can be one of the hardest things to do, to make ourselves stop, to be free from distraction, and to reorientate our minds and our hearts towards God. And it sounds, it sounds really, really simple, but at least in my experience, it can be one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian faith, particularly, I think, in a city like London, where uh, so much uh, is demanded of us, it's so busy, our time can be really stretched. And I think this can be, or uh, has been a challenge for me, but I do feel like, in my experience as well, this can be one of the most rewarding things that we can do and one of the most important things, I think, that Jesus modelled to us. Another uh, organisation that is contributing to this uh, conversation about this kind of uh, heightened anxiety in our culture is an organisation called the School of Life. Uh, they are a secular organisation that look at issues like uh, how to have meaningful work, how to have relationships, how to deal with things that have happened in our past, but they do so uh, through a secular perspective. Um, they release books, they hold conferences and talks, and they are, they are essentially a, a kind of like a secular church. And one of their big focuses is on something that they call calm, which is, uh, I guess, another just way of saying uh, peace. Um, but just to be clear, uh, just wanted to say a caveat, they produce stuff that is really helpful, uh, and they do in, uh, engage in this kind of debate in a really, really good way. And I think a lot of organizations or people can belittle faith, um, but in my experience, these are not one of them at all. Um, and they actually have been, uh, the things they produce can be really helpful. But they argue that one of the most significant ways we can get peace is to realise that everything we do and everything we care about does not matter. In fact, a direct quote from a video they produced on uh, peace says this, everything we do and are is in truth meaningless. And they argue that we exaggerate our own self-importance, uh, yet in reality we are just utterly insignificant. And I think one of the big problems with this outlook, this uh, view, is that often that can be the cause of our anxiety. 
and lack of peace. Having the sense that everything is meaningless, that the things that we love don't really matter, the things that we would describe as beautiful don't, aren't really beautiful, there is no such thing. I don't actually think that brings us peace. I think that can do the opposite. And here's the big difference where our worldview and their worldview collide. They say that you can have peace because you don't matter, whereas Jesus says you can have peace because you do. You matter so much because that, that he died for you on the cross so that you could have peace, that he loves you and he cares about every aspect of your life. And Jesus offers us peace both, both through dying on the cross where our sins and our alienation and our brokenness uh, is dealt with and then resurrects from the dead so that we could enjoy new life with him. And what's beautiful about this reality is that it is a gift, that we are saved because of God's grace, not by our own effort. God doesn't ask us to work for his love. He offers it to us as a gift. All we need to do is receive it. And I just want you to remember that point in your head because it will become particularly relevant later on. Our culture is searching for peace, but I think they're looking in the wrong place. The peace that comes from knowing that you were created, that you are loved by that creator and that he has a plan for your life, that he's given you purpose, I think is greater than any other peace this world has to offer. And you might be hearing this and thinking, well, but yeah, that sounds pretty good. I'd like some of that peace. Will there be an opportunity for you to respond after this talk? However, uh, looking at this passage, the implication of what Paul is saying is that it doesn't stop with us receiving peace. And there's a really helpful parallel with this passage in Ephesians with uh, a, a piece of scripture in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52. And it says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who, pro who proclaim salvation. When an army won a battle, uh, that's generally how people would have heard about it in ancient times. Someone would have run from town to town or rode a horse from town to town uh, saying, we've won or there's victory or there's peace. And that's how people would have uh, known about it. And as Dave preached uh, brilliantly last week, we do believe the battle has been won, that Jesus has defeated sin and death and as a result has given us new life. And we can receive this incredible peace from God. But as I said, it doesn't finish with us receiving peace. We firstly wear the shoes ourselves and then we are to walk. We're to take this peace with us and to tell others about the good news of Jesus and the peace that he offers. And we call this, uh, generally call this evangelism. Now evangelism or sharing your faith, I'm sure will bring up lots of different emotions for many people. Uh, some of you will hear that word and you'll uh, be like, oh man, I love sharing my faith. I, I'm not always looking for opportunity. I even saw Baz shaking his head as I said evangelism, like, or nodding his head like, this, that's an evangelist right there. But like, we just love it. We're always looking for opportunity to talk about our faith. But then for us, others of us, we might hear that word and feel, oh, oh no, I feel... The, the guilt is brewing. I don't feel like I talk about my faith enough or I find it really hard and I, I feel like I don't have the answers to the questions that people have. Now, others of us here who might be exploring faith would have different uh, experiences of this as well. Some of you may have uh, met people that have been really helpful in your walk or in your journey uh, who have maybe shared stories or your experience, but you also may have met people that have not helped you at all who have been really self-righteous or uh, have been angry or you, and you found yourself moving further away from God than closer to him. I'm hoping that for the rest of this talk, we can uh, we'll just will help us when we think about evangelism at whatever part of the journey we are on. So how do we do evangelism in our culture today? What are some of the challenges that we face and how can we overcome them? 
And if we look back in the verses in Ephesians, one of the key aspects of this verse is the word readiness that comes from putting on the shoes. And the Greek word uh, translated as readiness is the word hetemasia, which can also mean preparation or firmness. Uh, So this could mean uh, a few things. One is that we are ready to move. We're ready to go where he leads us. We're ready to move from town to town, to to use the analogy from Isaiah, to share this good news uh, that we have peace. Um, And the other explanation could be that we are ready to stand our ground. Roman shoes had studs on them, uh, a bit like football boots or rugby boots do. So if you're kind of uh, under attack, you had a firm footing in the ground. And in this context of evangelism, it means that either we're ready to find uh, people who uh, we can share the good news with, or perhaps we are under attack and we're ready to defend our faith. And I think it can mean maybe either in different situations or at different stages or with different people. But I think what's really important to notice, and I kind of uh, refer to this in in the intro, uh, is Paul's choice of words and how he describes the gospel. He says, have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, he could have used loads of different words to describe the gospel that still would have been true. He could have called it the gospel of love or the gospel of victory or forgiveness or the gospel of truth. But instead, he uses the gospel of peace. Why? I think he does this because by referencing it as the gospel of peace, it shapes the atmosphere, it forms the conversation and the environment. And this has huge consequences for how we look and how we do evangelism. And one of the clearest examples of this is found in Luke 10, where Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to say that the kingdom of God, or in other words, the way of Jesus or the life that Jesus had on offer was here and available. And I just want to focus on two verses, verses five and six. It says, and this is Jesus saying to his followers, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Now, what I find really interesting about this part of this uh, chapter is that by saying peace to this house, it seemed to have no uh, kind of impact on whether the person they would meet would be peaceful or not. It doesn't say that we should say uh, before we go in, pray, Lord, I pray that there will be someone in this house that will be peaceful. It just says, before you go in, say peace to this house. Why does Jesus ask them to do that? If it had no bearing or it had no effect on the outcome, what was the point? I think part of the reason is this. It was a reminder to the disciples about what they were bringing with them. Before you say a word, before you go in, remember that you're bringing the gospel of peace. When we talk about our faith, I think we often need to remember this. Whenever we interact with people, we first and foremost are bringing with us peace, both with our presence and with our words. And by saying peace to this house, the disciples are reminded of that before they say anything else. As disciples of Jesus, we are to bring peace, both with the message that we carry, the words that we say, and the actions that we take. And this is, this is more important than winning a debate or winning an argument or being right. We have to bring the gospel of peace with us. And secondly, by saying peace to this house, uh, the disciples made it clear to the people they were talking to what their intention was. Um, So they were bringing peace and the person there would have known that. Whether they were a peaceful back wasn't the disciples' responsibility or they had no control over that. And in fact, I think when we do share our faith, we should expect both peace back but also hostility. But both Jesus and Paul, in different but very clear ways, emphasise the importance of peace when it comes to evangelism. And so often our culture has not felt like the church has bought peace. 
Instead, we've bashed people around the heads with our Bibles. Anyone else get called a Bible basher at school or whatever? Like, yeah, it's just, there's a reason for that. Um, but it feels like as a result of that, we've lost so much cultural significance, partly because we haven't taken the time to understand the culture that we are evangelizing to. In order to evangelize effectively, we need to know who it is that we're bringing peace to. We need to know our audience. And currently, we are living in a pretty unique period of history in the West, where we are moving away from what is a, largely, uh, a culture which is largely based around Christian values to one that isn't. We're moving away from what you could call Christian culture to a post-Christian culture culture. And this has massive implications on how we do evangelism. And if you're interested in this subject, you should definitely check out this podcast, This Cultural Moment. Um, it's really helped me uh, shape this talk, but also just understand where the church has been, where it is right now, and where it's going in the context of our culture, particularly Western culture. And in this podcast, they mention a vicar called Leslie Newbegin. Uh, and he was, uh, in 1936, he traveled with his wife, Helen, to India to be a missionary. And they were there for 40 years. They were in uh, Madras in India for 40 years. And they spent the best part of their lives preaching the gospel to people who probably had never heard of Jesus before. Or if they had, it would have been very uh, little knowledge of him. And they didn't return home until 1974. And incidentally, to get home, they literally traveled from Madras in India to Birmingham in the UK by bus. That is just like the most hardcore thing I've ever heard. Like I get annoyed when I have to change a bank or something, but it definitely puts it in perspective. Um, but let's just imagine that scenario for a moment. Um, you're Leslie and uh, Helen Newbegin. You've uh, left the England, and it's the 1930s. World War II hasn't happened yet. Uh, the UK is just coming out of the Great uh, Depression, and um, the church would have still made or had a lot of significance in communities up and down the country. And then you return to England in the 1970s. The Sex Pistols are on TV. The famous Time magazine, Is God Dead? front cover is already nearly 10 years old. The culture that Newbegin was returning to was radically different to the one that he left. And because of this, Newbegin realized that he needed to treat 1970s England or the UK like he treated 1930s India, like a missionary. That in the same way he studied the culture of India and tried to understand how he could communicate the gospel in the most culturally appropriate way, we now have to do the same in the West. And as I sort of referred to uh, previously, we can see uh, three distinct periods of time in what you could call a Christian culture. Uh, the first is pre-Christian, where there is little or no knowledge of Jesus and the Gospels. The second is Christian, where Christianity is the prevailing cultural worldview. And then finally, post-Christian, where Christianity is no longer the predominant worldview. So Newbegin left what was largely a Christian culture and returned to find a post-Christian culture. People didn't have the same assumptions or beliefs that they had when he'd left. And here's the challenge for us. We are in a post-Christian culture, which is defining itself against Christianity. In fact, the School of Life do this pretty overtly. Uh, they've called their manifesto the good book, which is a phrase more commonly associated with the Bible. They're literally defining themselves against Christianity. And post-Christian culture still wants the fruit of what the church would call the kingdom of God, peace, joy, justice, strong relationships, fulfilling work, but they reject the idea that it has come from God, particularly the Christian God. And this became an unavoidable reality for me recently. As most of you know, I changed jobs last year. I started working for Christchurch London. Uh, and uh, one of the most interesting things that I found with that move is the look on people's face when I say what my job is. Uh, so if I'm at a wedding or an event and uh, I'm meeting new people, naturally uh, the conversation comes up and uh, conversation happens and work comes up. And it's just really interesting to see the look on their face when they say that I'm a leader in a church. Uh, it's usually a mix of complete surprise. Uh, maybe they assume I'm some kind of model 
model or, uh, or actor. Didn't laugh that much, thanks. Um, or they look at me, which, is, which I can only really describe as a mix of surprise, but also kind of a, like, what's wrong with you kind of look in their face. Uh, it's quite interesting to watch. And they, uh, they kind of avoid me or avoid the subject completely, and I assume it's about the work thing. It may be something else, but I just don't want to think about that. Uh, but our culture has become so alienated from faith that they almost can't even comprehend why someone uh, still in their 20s, still, uh, would leave their career and want to work for a church. Faith is irrelevant. We've moved on. We're over it. And this is a big problem because I believe that the peace that our culture is searching for, the peace that our culture is looking for, is, is found and only found in Jesus Christ. Our culture wants peace. It wants freedom. It wants joy, justice, love, the hallmarks of the kind of kingdom that Jesus preached about, yet they don't want to come under the authority of the king. And Mark Sayer, who is on the podcast I mentioned earlier, he's a philosopher and pastor from Melbourne. He describes this as wanting the kingdom without the king. And so when we approach our culture, we're not speaking to people who have no previous knowledge or understanding of Christianity. Instead, we're probably speaking to people that have likely, uh, they've likely been in the church at some point in their life, and they probably have a perception about what Christianity teaches. We're not starting from a blank slate. And so we need to understand the culture we are in in order to speak most effectively to it. Just to give you an example, when I was preparing for this talk, I wasn't just thinking about the content that I was going to say, but also how I was going to say it how I was going to deliver it. And it meant that I needed to understand my audience. I needed to understand the culture of this service. And fortunately, I know most of you pretty well. Uh, so I had a rough idea about the people, or in this analogy, the culture of the service, so I could tailor my talk so that it's understood as much as possible. For example, I know that the majority of us are on social media, so I should probably say something about that. I know that some of you have been in church your whole lives, and some of you may be in church for the first time in years. So I needed to try as best I could to use language and references that everyone will understand, because I didn't want anyone to feel alienated from this talk. And it's exactly the same when we think about evangelism. We need to know who we're speaking to and the cultural narratives that have formed each person and society at large. Our culture is desperate for peace, and so our role, once we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, is to walk and bring the Prince of Peace to our world. And when we look back over the, well, years and years of, of church history, uh, often the danger of evangelizing in a pre-Christian culture uh, was that it didn't just bring Christianity with it, but it also brought Western culture with it too. So it wasn't just the gospel that was preached, but it was this is how you should look, this is how you should speak, this is what you should care about, this is how you should dress. There was always this danger of colonization. But now in the period that we're in, the reverse is true. We're more in danger of being shaped by our culture around us than shaping it ourselves. And in this passage, Paul uses a word that comes up time and time again, and it is to stand. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Paul reminds us that we're in a battle and we're to stand our ground in the shoes of the gospel of peace. But if you're anything like me, this can be really hard. And evangelism can feel tough. Uh, and it can be hard to, hard to stand up uh, with, uh, to our faith, particularly now that we're, we feel like we've lost what is maybe any cultural significance or any influence over how our culture is shaped. And now the danger is, as I said, is that we're more shaped by the world around us than shaping it ourselves. And one of the major ways this is happening, let me just get a visual aid out, not that you know what this is, is a phone. Our phone uh, is probably the most powerful possession that we have. <clears throat> 
It's changed how we think about connectivity, communication, how we instigate and maintain relationships, and how we spend our time. And distraction is becoming uh, one of the idols of our time, and I think our phone has a big, uh, or is a big reason for that. And incidentally, if you want to be freaked out, um, not that you want to be freaked out, but if you want to see something interesting, if you have an iPhone, go to the battery section of your settings and you can see how many hours you've spent on each app over the last 24 hours or seven days. And when I did it, I was, um, it was, was not a good moment. It's pretty horrific, to be honest. Uh, if that doesn't convict you about how much time you spend on your phone, nothing will. Uh, but before I carry on, just to uh, clarify, um, I'm not anti-social media, I'm not anti-technology. You can follow me on all the channels at JoelWade88. Um, however, I think one of the major risks of social media particularly is it has the potential to dehumanize people. When we see a comment or an opinion that we don't like, we forget that there's a person on the other side of the screen, and often we would never say things, uh, or, or we would say things that we would never say face to face. When we're on social media, do we shape the world as people of peace? When faith or politics come up in our feed, are we people of peace? When we speak to people we don't agree with, do we disagree with peace or do we bring war with our words? And arguably how we engage on social media has way more uh, consequences than how we engage one-on-one. -on -one. Potentially hundreds of people could see a post that you've written. And also Dee pointed out earlier that not only do we uh, need to be careful how we say, but often we can have this... Um, uh, kind of a desire to want to just back away and not say anything. I struggle with this and just keep out of the conversation because you don't want to get hurt or you don't want to uh, sort of step out. Do we shape the world as people of peace or are we shaped by it? So practically, uh, what are we to do? How can we talk to people about our faith in this cultural moment, in this society, as, pre as people bringing peace? Firstly, I think it's really important to notice, and we've tried to do this pretty much every week uh, on this series, is that, uh, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not getting armoured up because we're going to go out and fight some people. Uh, we're putting on our armour because we're fighting spiritual powers and authorities. And this is really important because it changes so much. It means that we treat people as they are, as people, as image bearers like us. Way too often the church has not brought, it with, brought with it the gospel of peace, but instead it's brought judgment and said, be better, do better, be more righteous, be more holy, and we ram the truth down people's throats, and peace is nowhere to be seen. And Paul said in Ephesians 2, and I think this is becoming one of my favorite verses, uh, he being Jesus came to preach peace to those who are far away and to those who are near. Nobody, however close you feel to God, or however far away you feel, is excluded from the peace of the gospel that Jesus came to preach. There is no one that he did not come to, pre to preach peace to, and we have to have this in mind when we approach evangelism. And this is where what I talked about earlier becomes really important, that we are saved by grace, uh, not by our own effort, and that it is a gift. Um, because this has huge implications for how we talk about our faith and, our, and how we interact with evangelism. If we believe a gospel that says you have to earn God's love by your own effort, that you have to be a good person to be a Christian, the message that you bring to people is be like me. Look at the good person that I am and all the good things that I do. And I think our culture is still feeling the repercussions of that, that um, I guess, mindset or view that the church, that's what the church were doing. They just wanted us to be, be like them or we were being judgmental. That, I think, is still the case in our culture. But if you believe the gospel that Jesus and Paul preached, that salvation is a gift and we simply decide whether to accept it or not, and that we are saved because of his grace and his love towards it or towards us, it changes everything. One says, look at how good I am. The other says, look how good God is. One says, be like me. The other says, be like Jesus. And that difference is everything. 
And Tim Keller, an American pastor and author, puts it brilliantly. He says, we have to show the modern world that we've learned our lesson, that we have to learn the difference between bearing witness to the truth and pretending to possess the truth. For way too long, the church has done evangelism by going in with truth without peace. And when we evangelize, we need to be wearing the shoes of the gospel of peace. So practically, we can do three things, three simple things when we think about evangelism. Firstly, is just to know your story. Know how Jesus has brought you peace. Secondly, know God's story. Know how he did it. Uh, read through the New Testament. Read through the Gospels. And a great way of doing this but for both things, and knowing your story and knowing God's story, is to go to a connect group where you can work this stuff out and you can talk to people about it. And thirdly, is to know their story. Uh, spend time getting to know people. Often questions people ask uh, are rooted in their experience. If they ask about suffering, could it be because they've suffered themselves or they've seen someone they love suffer? And this can be often one of the biggest fears that we have, that we, we feel like we uh, don't have the answers to some of the questions that we get, so we just avoid the subject of faith completely. Um, but I just want to say, and I guess trying to relieve some pressure or some fear, that you don't have to have all the answers. None of us have all the answers. And I love apologetics, which is the defense of our faith. Uh, and there's definitely something about being uh, prepared in this passage in Ephesians 6. But apologetics doesn't save people. You could have all the right answers, but if you, if you don't say them and if you don't bring the gospel of peace with you, you won't get anywhere. Uh, if you don't have the answer, don't worry. It's okay to say you don't know. Just be a person of peace. And I think we really need to give ourselves the space uh, to be honest with ourselves and say, uh, and say to people how we really are, how we are doing with our faith. That say sometimes we don't have all the answers or sometimes we can doubt and do doubt. And I love the line that Rich wrote in the song Restless. He says, uh, it says this, Haunted by doubt or tempted by faith, our longings for life are met within your grace. And it is so true. People of faith do doubt. It doesn't mean you're a failure or that you've lost your faith. It just makes you a normal human being. But I also believe that people are tempted by faith. That you hear how uh, our culture responds to this lack of peace or this heightened fear and anxiety and it doesn't really do anything for you. you, don't, you just, it's just not enough. It just doesn't feel right. And you hear the message of Jesus and you feel the draw. I believe that is the Holy Spirit speaking. And as a church, we really want to uh, see people experience the peace that comes from Jesus, the, the fullness of the peace that comes from Jesus. It's like this deep desire in us that won't go away, that we are not just here to put on a, a great service with some amazing worship and an adequate talk and have a nice drink at Mother Kelly's. A little joke there. Some of you missed it. Um, but we are here as a community together to follow Jesus, to become more like him and tell people about him. And I think Baz hit this on the head and with Hannah's song as well, like, we are here, we've got to be courageous, we've got to be strong and courageous. And sometimes the mission that we are called to, or we look at the world outside and we feel like, man, this is just too big, this is too dark, I can't do this. I really feel like there's a call on us as a service to respond to that by praying, by coming to God, by seeking him and seeking his face. And specifically, specifically about being people of peace, carrying the gospel uh, or the gospel of peace to people who don't yet know him. And when we look at the end of Ephesians 6, Paul over and over and over again emphasizes prayer, particularly when it comes to evangelism. And he speaks to this fear. Even Paul, who was just this incredible uh, follower of Jesus, felt this sense of fear that some of us can feel when it comes to evangelism. He says this at the end of Ephesians 6, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
Pray also for me that whenever I speak, uh, I speak words, uh, words may be given so that I will fiercely make known the, me- the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change, chains. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. Did the band want to come back, back up? Thanks. Prayer was and is hugely important. If we want to see more people come to faith, we just have to pray. We just have to. And as Dee said earlier, we are feeling this real call for us to come together as a community to pray. And so tomorrow we'll be starting our week of prayer. uh, And we're going to send us a a short reflection and a passage just so that we can all be praying for the same thing. And I'm just really excited to see what God might do this week. Uh, I'm really, uh, I'm just really excited. Uh, And then we're having our worship night on Friday night where we'll come together, we'll worship him. Uh, I'll share a little bit about where the service is at and where it's going. And I just feel like... um, Particularly in a few of us, we're just feeling this sense that God is calling us, not just to be here and have a great time, but calling us out to be people of peace, to carry the gospel of peace with us. So we're going to sing a song, and then after that, I'm going to pray two prayers. Firstly, I'm going to pray that for those of us who feel this real desire to see more people come to faith, and not just that, but for you to be involved in that story, to you to see that, for you to see God move, maybe in a way that you haven't seen before. I'm just going to pray uh, that we would see that and we would, God would give us the strength and the words and the wisdom and the gift of seeing that. Maybe you're fearful or for whatever reason you've not seen it yet. Um, but I'm just going to pray, pray for myself included in that as well. And what I'll do is I'll just ask you to open your hands like this, just like you're receiving. And then after that, I'm going to pray a second prayer for those of us who maybe wouldn't call ourselves followers of Jesus, but you resonate, resonate with this idea of being tempted by faith. And you are longing for peace in your heart and mind. And you hear uh, the message of Jesus and you do feel that pull. I'm going to pray uh, that you take that step tonight to say, that you're, to say to Jesus that you're ready to follow him. And you may not have all the answers, but that is okay. But I'm going to ask you to make the same step as well, just to open your arms while I pray. And pray along in your heart, in your mind. So why don't we stand? Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit christchurchlondon.org.